Chapter 8 of What is Industrial Democracy by Norman Thomas. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by The Progressing America Project. What is Industrial Democracy? Chapter 8 Theories of Industrial Democracy. Hitherto we have concerned ourselves principally with actual experiments in the direction of industrial democracy, and have examined them and their tendencies with only incidental consideration of the elaborate social theories which have been expounded as to the true road to freedom. Salvation has been preached through socialism, communism, anarchism, syndicalism, guild socialism, and consumerism, if I may so style the recent glorification of the all-sufficiency of consumers' cooperatives. These great theories have in part been derived from actual experiments and social tendencies, and have in part inspired such experiments. Government ownership to a degree, amounting to state capitalism, is, in Russia, an avowed step in the re-education of society toward communism. The smaller degree of government ownership practiced in Germany before the war was an avowed alternative to socialism, the still smaller, but extensive, degree of government ownership in England and America is pretty much a rule-of-thumb affair stumbled into for practical reasons. This one illustration sheds light on the difficulty of judging actual experiments apart from developed theories. Yet it is manifestly impossible in the limits of this pamphlet to examine these great social theories in any detail. Fortunately, that task has been well accomplished, in Harry Wellington Laidler's admirable pamphlet, Roads to Freedom, published in this same series. Our task is the simpler one, of seeing how these theories approach the problem of industrial democracy. We have as evidence not merely the theories themselves, but actual conditions in Russia, where the communists absolutely control the government, and in Western Europe where socialists have administered more than one government with far from absolute power. Neither communists nor socialists have established their systems, but they have made a greater or less approach toward a realization of their theories. Footnote. On the Russian experiment, see Report of the British Labor Committee on Condition in Russia, International Publishing Company, New York, a report which has been attacked as giving too rosy a picture in a pamphlet by the socialist leader, F. Alder, published in London by P. S. King and Son. End footnote. Differing Theories All of the great revolutionary theories agree in condemning the present system as essentially undemocratic. All of them stand for production for use and not for profit. They differ in their organizing principles for a new social order and their tactics for its attainment. For our purpose, the sharpest and most fundamental differences are, first, the relative places they give to man as a producer and as a consumer. Second, their divergent judgments of the place and value of the state. And third, their conception of the tactics by which the new society may be established. Syndicalism The first difference finds its clearest expression in the contrasted slogans, all power to the producer and all power to the consumer. Either would logically eliminate the waster and exploiter. Either would end the present industrial autocracy. All power to the producer is the more familiar cry, 
and heretofore by far the more potent. The simplest, most direct application of the slogan is that of the syndicalist who wants the organization of the workers to take over the management of industry and all necessary economic functions, together with such political functions, as would remain after we had delivered ourselves out of bondage to an exploiting class and slavery to the prejudices of nationalism. The international workers of the world is a Native American expression of syndicalism. Consumerism at the other extreme is the idea of the consumerists, that the machinery of the consumers' cooperative movement may be enlarged to control fundamental economic processes. Dr. James Peter Warbass, the best-known American spokesman of this group, argues that consumers' control is more directly democratic than syndicalism can be. Footnote. See James Peter Warbass, Cooperative Democracy, Macmillan. End footnote. Man works to live, he does not live to work. All people, children, the aged, invalids, are consumers. Not all are producers. Especially not all are producers, in the sense that makes their organization as such easy or natural. Housewives, heaven knows, are workers, but their psychology is emphatically a consumer psychology. Finally, production for use in itself implies the supremacy of the consumer's interest. To which the believer in producers' control will reply, by pointing to the greater number of producers' organizations, to the fact that consumers' cooperatives have not altogether succeeded in avoiding strikes or in making the workers feel that they are a part of this new democracy of industry. So up with the workers and on to the general strike and victory. The shock of head-on collision between these theories is somewhat lessened by two considerations. First, after the argument is over, each side usually makes the concession that the other exists. Dr. Warbass would not forbid organizations of producers, and the Syndicalist Congress at Lyons in 1919 demanded industrialized nationalization of the great services of modern economy, and defined nationalization as the confiding of national property to the interested parties, namely, the associated producers and consumers. Footnote. See Jode. Modern Political Theory. Oxford University Press. End footnote. Second, both the syndicalist and the cooperator of the Warbass School dislike or hate the state. It is this attitude that sharply differentiates syndicalists from communists and socialists. The Communists the communists believe that all power should belong to the producers. They believe that the state is the creature of the capitalist class and that the necessity for it will ultimately pass with the passing of the capitalist class. Nevertheless, in Russia, for the transition period, they have seized on the machinery of the state through which to exercise the dictatorship of the proletariat and have sternly suppressed syndicalism in practice. The government, not the unions, controls industry, and while the government supposedly is elected by the workers, as workers in various geographical districts, in point of fact effective control today is in the hands of the Communist Party, and not of the workers as such. The Communists believe that in the transition period, democracy is impracticable. More than that, it is illusory so long as the capitalist order maintains any real strength. 
its superior resources enable it to persuade or cajole the workers on important discussions. True democracy will only be possible with the stamping out of the exploitation inherent in capitalism and the re-education of the workers. The dictatorship of the Communist Party is the means to that end. Socialists It is on this point that communists have broken with socialists. The socialists still have faith in social democracy as a method, as well as an ultimate goal. Democracy is terribly handicapped in its working under a capitalist order, but as the organized and increasingly class-conscious workers seek to use it, it offers a hope for progress, without wholesale and suicidal violence such as the catastrophic theory of communism does not afford. The communists look for an inevitable debacle of capitalist civilization, probably through new world war between rival imperialisms. Then, and only then, as in the Russia of 1917, can communism take hold and restore order. To which the socialist replies that this is a council of despair, that if we cannot prevent new world war, we may not save our Western civilization from new dark ages, that there is no guarantee that out of such chaos a Mussolini may not emerge rather than a Lenin, that at any rate the practice of dictatorship, even in a good cause, leads to habits of repression and love of power, not easily slowed off with the passing of the need for them. It is still, the socialists say, a matter of hope rather than sure conviction that the Russian dictatorship of the proletariat will establish a prosperous, successful, and democratic communism, and the application of similar methods to Western nations with their political traditions would have far more dubious results. Both socialists and communists, however sharp the tactical differences between them, are committed to some use of the state. Neither party is so exclusively statist in outlook as its critics allege. The communists in Russia have sanctioned or even fostered both workers' unions and cooperatives, and modern socialists regard both forms of organization as necessary supplements to the state. Guild Socialism Socialists, however, in general put a degree of trust in the usefulness of the state far greater than their cousins, the guild socialists. The thinkers of this school have made a real contribution in emphasizing the need of plural organization to meet the plural needs of man. They have taken over, in less extreme form, some of the syndicalist attack on statism. All men have two sets of economic interest, not instinctively harmonized in one organization. A. Let us suppose is a resident of Pittsburgh and a steelworker. As a steelworker, he is, or ought to be, interested in the conduct of the industry. His natural associates are steelworkers, whether in Pittsburgh or in Gary, or even eventually in the Roar or China, a point overlooked by some of the national guildsmen. But as a resident of Pittsburgh, A is interested in sanitation, parks, schools, and his natural associates are his neighbors. The former set of interests should be organized in guilds. The latter set may in some measure be served by the political organization, which the guild socialists call the commune rather than the state. Guild socialists also admit the value of consumers' cooperatives for the retailing of merchandise. When they turn to the relation between the guilds and the state, or commune, they are not agreed. Neither are they as clear as they might be, 
in asserting the superior interest of society as a whole, in the final control of basic necessities like natural resources, public utilities, and superpower. The notion of the exclusive right of workers in basic industries, like coal mining or railroading, to control absolutely that which is essential to our well-being, is not democratic. Neither syndicalism nor extreme guild socialism can guarantee equality of bargaining power between, let us say, the makers of superpower and the makers of pants. Both may be necessary to civilization, but society would be at the mercy of a superpower guild, as it never would be of the tailor's union. Neither does guild socialism, any more than syndicalism, guard against the tendency of all guilds to become conservative, professional castes, carrying on old customs. It has been well said that if we had trusted a guild of shipbuilders, we would never have had iron ships. There is no strongly organized guild socialist movement. It has been most useful in prodding the socialist movement to the dangers of statism and bureaucracy and stimulating interest in the idea of democratic administration which is to be found in the Plum Plan and in various British and American plans for nationalization of coal. Mr. Plum, however, had never heard of guild socialism when he wrote the Plum Plan. The general idea of democratic control is endorsed by the socialist parties of Europe and America. Anarchy Concerning anarchy, it is not necessary to speak at length. Kropotkin's communist anarchism remains one of the most beautiful theories of social organization ever put in print. It presupposes a desire and capacity in men for voluntary organization for all conceivable social ends for which there is little evidence. In our complex civilization some economic services are so essential that to abolish the social machinery under which they are carried on would be fraught with great risk. Sometime mankind may be educated beyond any need for binding, inclusive social organizations like the guild or state. For the present, there is more hope in democratically controlling these organizations than in scrapping them. The general tendency today is for anarchists to work along syndicalist lines. This anarcho-syndicalist approach to economic problems is at present, relatively obscured by the apparently greater success of communism in Russia and socialism in Western Europe. But if Soviet repression and bureaucracy continue in Russia, and the moderate socialism of the British Labour Party remains so nearly impotent before the perplexing problems and pervasive spirit of British imperialism, a new wave of anarcho-syndicalism among the proletariat is almost certain to arrive. Nevertheless, my own feeling is that while socialism offers no pure panacea, no creed of salvation merely to believe in, which is to be saved, it does nevertheless in its more modern and less doctrinaire forms offer the best hope of rational, nonviolent progress towards efficient industrial democracy, in which the sum total of true individual liberty may be increased and not diminished. End of chapter 8